so I grouped some of the questions together uh, if they had a similar theme. So the first question was, what about bare attention and the plop mind? Well, I'll explain that in a minute. Could you talk a little bit about mirror-like mind and then becoming the object? I guess dropping the watcher, so to speak. Also, sati, what is it? A thought? Uh, intention? Super thought? Meta thought, M-E-T-A? How can we get more of it? Okay, so bear attention and mindfulness. The plop mind refers to uh, a haiku poem that I've often used to describe the quality of bare attention. It's a haiku by the famous uh, Zen poet uh, Basho. And this is the English translation of it. One English translation it says, the old pond, a frog jumps in plop. And when I first read that, and this is many, many years ago, uh, it just struck me as being kind of the essence of bare attention. So there's no elaborate description of the pond at dusk and the moon shining in it. And no, it's just the simple bare attention, the old pond, the frog jumps in, plop. So in thinking about bare attention, and especially in the context of uh, the Satipatthana Sutta, um, I think it's helpful to understand that mindfulness, or sati, as the second question said, what is sati? That mindfulness really has <clears throat> two aspects. And both of them are expressed in the sutta itself. So one aspect, we could say, is the more passive quality. And that would be the quality of bare attention. It's just simply knowing what's arising. And we see this many times in the sutta, the direction, the instruction, to simply have bare attention for what's arising. One of the phrases that I've been using a lot in the interviews <coughs> You know, it's a line in the refrain that says, be mindful, there is a body, just to the extent necessary for clear knowing and continuous mindfulness. So that has been a very powerful instruction for me. Using that uh, phrase, there is a body, it's just that quality of settling in with bare attention to that very simple knowing, that very simple awareness. Oh, there's a body. And then within that frame, we can simply be aware with bare attention of whatever else arises. So within the frame, there is a body. can be aware of sounds arising, be aware of the breath arising. So all of this is bare attention. We find the same quality of bare attention in the very first instruction the Buddha gives for being with the breath, where he says, 
when one breathes in, when we breathe in, know you're breathing in. When breathing out, know you're breathing out. It's amazing that such a simple instruction uh, can be so difficult to do. And it, it seems so simple when breathing in, know you're breathing in, when breathing out, know you're breathing out. These are the words of the Buddha himself. <laughs> so that's bare attention, nothing, nothing elaborated. Later on in the sutta, when he talks about being mindful of activities, mindful of all the activities in the day, I thought I would just read a little bit from that section. It says, again, bhikkhus, and remember, bhikkhu means, in this context, anyone who is practicing meditation. Again, bhikkhus, a bhikkhu is one who acts in full awareness when going forward and returning when looking ahead and looking around, when bending an arm or straightening it, when wearing robes, who acts in full awareness when eating, drinking, consuming food and tasting, when defecating and urinating, when walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, waking up, talking and keeping silent, one acts with full awareness. So that's just bare attention to everything we're doing through the day. I'm just wondering, how much of that instruction do you take to heart? You know, so that it's really, the practice is really acting with full awareness to everything we're doing. There's nothing outside of the practice, and everything is equal. But it's so often that we create a hierarchy for ourselves. And for most people, maybe not for you, wise as you are, but for most people, generally, sitting is the most important. That's the real meditation. And walking is pretty important. So we kind of get there, walking is important. And everything else, yeah, it's important, but it kind of comes in third place. So just, I know many of you are leaving at the end of this month. So maybe in this last week, the last few days, you might make a little experiment and in your mind, reverse the order of priority. Right? So just in these last days, make all the other activities besides sitting and walking the number one priority for where you're paying attention. And second is walking, and third is sitting. And just see if it changes anything. See if it brings a little more attentiveness to those maybe very small movements or small activities you know, that we do, that we're not really paying that careful attention to. The Buddha uses this instruction of bare attention again with mindfulness of feeling. So bare attention, is, it, it's, it's a very important quality of mindfulness. It says, 
when there is a pleasant feeling, one knows there's a pleasant feeling. When there's an unpleasant feeling, one knows there's an unpleasant feeling. When neutral, one knows there's a neutral feeling. So there's not a lot of effort required for this. And in this context, we could really understand sati, the Pali word, which is usually translated as mindfulness, but its, its core meaning is remembering. And so in this quality of bare attention, we really see the only effort that's needed is to remember. It's remembering to be present. Because the actual being present and knowing what's arising is not difficult at all. So we see the instruction, you know, with, in terms of the breath, in terms of bodily activities, in terms of feelings. <clears throat> the same instruction in the third foundation, mindfulness of mind, where the Buddha says, you know, one knows the lustful mind as lustful. One knows the angry mind as being the angry mind. One knows the deluded mind as being the deluded mind. One knows the contracted mind in sloth and torpor as being contracted. One knows the distracted mind in restlessness as being distracted. So in this instruction, in the third foundation, there's nothing more we need to do than simply know, oh, the mind is like this now. The mind is like this. The mind is like this. So all of this is the quality of bare attention. I want to just sum it up. Bhikkhu Bodhi wrote about it. And I think he really encapsulated what bare attention, this quality of mindfulness means. In the practice of right mindfulness, the mind is trained to remain in the present, open, quiet, and alert, contemplating the present event. All judgments and interpretations have to be suspended, or if they occur, just registered and drop. The task is simply to note whatever comes up just as it is occurring, riding the changes of events in the way a surfer rides the waves on the sea. The whole process is a way of coming back into the present, of standing in the here and now without slipping away, without getting swept away by the tides of distracting thoughts. To practice mindfulness is thus not a matter not so much of doing, but of undoing. And so that's, that is plop mind. The old pond, the, jo- the frog jumps in, plop. Breathing in, we know we're breathing in, plop. Breathe out, know we're breathing out, plop. So it's just to strengthen that understanding of this quality of bare attention. But there's another side to mindfulness as well, which is also included in the instructions in the sutta. So we say bare attention is the passive side. The active side of mindfulness is where the Buddha is giving us instructions in one way or another to train the mind. So it's not only or always simply bear attention. In some situations, we take an active engagement and train the mind in one way or another. So just as a few examples of this from the sutta, 
in the further instructions the Buddha gives on the breath, he starts with simple bare attention. There's no breathing in, no breathing out. And then it's interesting, in the third and fourth instruction, the language changes from one knows, in Pali it changes from one knows to one trains. So it's a very explicit shift. So one trains feeling the entire breath. Feeling the, the, yeah, so feeling the entire breath, or, or the breath throughout the body. It's interpreted in different ways. And in the fourth instruction, one breathes in, calming the formations. One breathes out, calming the formations. So in this instruction, it's not simply bare attention. We're actually engaged in a particular exercise. So it's helpful to just know that this is also part of our practice and can be used at different times. This more active part of mindfulness is very explicit in the fourth foundation of mindfulness, where the Buddha talks about the hindrances and the sense bases and the factors of awakening. So just as an example, with the different hindrances, first, first instruction is just bear attention. One knows whether it's present or not. Is desire present or not? Is aversion present or not? Okay, so that's simple bear attention. But then the Buddha is saying, need to investigate a little bit further. One knows how an unarisen hindrance can arise. Right? So we're not just waiting for it to come, we're beginning to investigate, well, how is it that desire or anger or restlessness, how is it that when it's not yet arisen, how does it come to be? And when it has arisen, the instruction is, we know it's arisen, how can we abandon it? How can we let go of it? So do you see the difference in these two, these two strands of mindfulness? There's one is just bare attention, simply knowing what's arising, and the other is the more active side when we're investigating a little bit more. So the question could arise, it wasn't written, but I'll ask it. How do we know when to use the bare attention approach? How do we know when to investigate a little more? And in a way, this is understanding the difference between the third and fourth foundation. Because in that third foundation, the Buddha is also talking about knowing the lustful mind is being lustful, the angry mind is angry. So that's, that sounds a lot like the hindrances. It's talked about in the fourth foundation. My understanding of it, and take this provisionally, when these states are arising, you know, desire or, or ill will or irritation, and they're arising, and we don't feel that stuck in them, we don't feel that caught by them, then simple bare attention is enough. We simply know it's arisen, we're aware, we're mindful, it comes, it goes. It's not much of a problem. The further investigation, which the Buddha elaborates when he's talking specifically about working with the hindrances, the further investigation is really helpful 
when we really feel caught in it. Okay, if there's some strong desire, some strong aversion or irritation, you know, and we're noting we think we're being mindful, but we're caught by it. So then simple bare attention may not be enough to keep the mind in balance. Then we want to really investigate, okay, what's the cause? What's feeding it? And how am I relating to it? So it's just helpful in understanding the practice of Vipassana, the practice of mindfulness, to realize that there is this range of approaches and to begin to play with each of them at the appropriate time. Okay. Why is a neutral feeling associated with delusion or ignorance? Is it not possible that a neutral feeling arises from a quiet mind or from a certain degree of equanimity, a kind of middle way feeling between positive and negative? Okay, so that's an interesting question because it points to the two different kinds of feelings that the Buddha spoke of, and I think I talked about this about six weeks ago or so, earlier on, where the Buddha makes a distinction between what is translated as worldly feelings and unworldly feelings. And each one of them has a pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral aspect. So the worldly feelings are the usual feelings we have based on sense objects. We see something, we hear something, we taste something. It's either pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. So that's the worldly feeling. The habitual conditioned response when we're not mindful to these worldly feelings based on sense objects is when we have that pleasant taste at any of the senses, generally we like it, we want it, we get attached to it, we want more. If it's unpleasant, generally we push it away. That's our habitual reaction. This pain in the body, how many of us would have a first reaction? Oh, good. Yes, pain. Our habitual reaction is not that. Whereas if we had nice, pleasant, tingly, rapture, oh, this feels good. So we can see, this is, this is just ordinary. This is our ordinary conditioning. With neutral feeling, because it's so subtle, it doesn't stand out, the habitual tendency is just to space out. It's not to know that a neutral feeling is there, because it's not particularly impactful. Okay, unworldly feelings, and all of this is in the Satipatthana Sutta. It's in, it's in the second foundation, mindfulness of feelings. Where the Buddha talks about unworldly feelings, and these are feelings not based on sense object. It's not they're coming from our sense contact, particularly. These are feelings that arise from dis- different aspects of renunciation. And so there can be unworldly pleasant feelings when the mind is very concentrated. Because it's secluded, the mind is secluded from the hindrances at that time. It has renounced the hindrances. So there's an unworldly pleasant feeling. 
there can be an unworldly, unpleasant feeling. You know, maybe you're on eight precepts and you feel hunger in the evening. You know, and you have a, maybe it's an unpleasant feeling. It's probably not huge, but maybe a little bit. But that's an unpleasant feeling based on renunciation. And so these feelings do not lead on the pleasant side to attachment or on the unpleasant side to aversion because they're based on renunciation. The unpleasant, the neutral, unworldly feeling is really what the question was about when the mind is very equanimous. And when we're in a state of equanimity, it's not particularly pleasant, it's not particularly unpleasant. It's just neutral, but that's coming out of a meditative state. It's coming out of a renunciation. And so it doesn't lead to delusion, but leads to further awareness. So I don't know whether all that, that was like a a condensed hour-long talk on the nature of feelings. But the question brought up, and it's, it's just interesting to explore either now or even when you leave, just, just to explore the distinction the Buddha is making between these worldly feelings and unworldly ones. So we have a better experiential understanding you know, of what actually he's talking about. And to realize that the worldly feelings often condition greed, hatred, delusion, and the unworldly feelings do not. So that's, that's the main point there. Okay. Let go of everything. Everything. In quotes. That's from a quote that I read from... Uh, So how can a layperson or householder with all their responsibilities, family, friends, truly let go of everything and still be in the world? The idea of complete liberation to my unenlightened mind still seems a bit frightening and even undesirable. Is different question. Is full liberation possible practicing in the relative comfort of the West? What about those monks who had to live in caves for 20 or 30 years? Other question. May I say, enjoy life, but pay attention to clinging. So what's, what's the scoop on clinging <laughs> and, and not being a monastic, li- living in the world, being... So there are a couple of things here I think would be worth pointing out. That letting go of clinging doesn't necessarily mean that somehow we get rid of everything. It means that we're not clinging to it. So there's a big difference there.
of course, the challenge for us as lay people living in the West is that a lot of society's condition, conditioning through advertising, through the media, is basically telling us, cling, be attached. You want this, you need this. <laughs> My colleague Sharon Salzberg tells this great story. She was uh, teaching in Israel, and she was walking through the old city in Jerusalem. And there are a lot of stalls there, and you know, people shop, little, little shops. And as she's passing by one of them, the shopkeeper calls out, I have what you need. <laughs> Whatever it is, <laughs> I have it. And what I have is what you need. <laughs> well, that's kind of the message we get a, a lot. You know, The marketplace has what we need. So there's a strong, a strong uh, reinforcement of the clinging mind, the wanting mind. But it's not the problem of the things in and of themselves. That's not the problem. The, the problem is in how we're relating. And can we live in the world and enjoy you know, what the world has to offer, but really, as, as that last question said, can we do it really watching out for whether the mind is grasping? This is a story I, I think I told last year or the year before. Maybe some of you heard it. <laughs> Just as, it was such a striking example of this force in the mind. I was doing a self-retreat, and uh, it was over the winter, and in the spring I was going to teach in Italy. So I was sitting, and then I, I was kind of thinking ahead to being in Italy, and then I had the image in my mind of this jacket I saw in the catalog. And I, oh, that's just the right jacket for this trip. <laughs> so, oh, you know, wanting, wanting. But it was, <laughs> it kept coming back in my mind. <laughs> Perfect jacket for Italy. And I just was watching over a period of time. At first it was just wanting, wanting, but it kept coming back. And so then it was, Needing, needing, I need that jacket. And then it went from, went from wanting to needing to must have. I must have this jacket. So I went online, I ordered the jacket. Two weeks later or so, whatever it came. It didn't fit, it didn't even look nice. But I want, I need, I must have became my little mantra of understanding those links of dependent origination. Desire, clinging, action. Right? It just gets played out in so many different ways. So our practice, the practice of liberation, is just to watch when it arises and to see if we can continue our practice of non-clinging, of non-grasping. I think that as lay people, it's not, it's not easy in terms of 
attaining full liberation, arhanship. Because remember, what that means is uprooting even the deep-seated tendencies of desire and aversion and restlessness and any kind of grasping at all. So that level of attainment for almost everybody, I think, would need a very supportive renunciate lifestyle. But the earlier stages of awakening, and as you probably know, it's talked about in terms of four stages of stream entry, once returner, non-returner, arhant. The first two stages really are well within the capacity to be supported by people leading a lay life. And there are many, many lay people, both from the Buddhist time all the way to the present, who were engaged in the world, but who were dedicated to the practice and were able to come to those levels of realization. So I think it's just helpful to put it into context and to see what, what environment supports what level of, of realization. Now, to the two great lay disciples of the Buddha, uh, Anattapindaka and Visaka, they were, they were both uh, these very wealthy uh, people you know, in, in the society, in the cities where the Buddha uh, traveled. And they had families and you know, all, whatever was involved in that world of great wealth, and each of them was sotapanas, each of them was stream enterers. So it's not, like in the Buddhist teaching, it's not that having things is necessarily some big obstacle to practice. Attachment to things is the obstacle. And so as lay people, I think we just need to understand that it's in the attachment that we need to look. It's, it's not so much... Uh, about our relationships or the things we have. This was a good question. In your 40 years of practice, what changes have you seen in yourself? <laughs> hmm. It really did make me reflect for a few minutes. Let's <laughs> see, have I changed at all? I think one of the biggest changes that's happened over all these years of practice is a deepening and growing appreciation for the vastness of this Dharma journey. You know, in the beginning, years. I said, oh, okay, I'm going to go to India and get fully enlightened. Or, oh, I'll do this three-month retreat and that'll be it. Or, I was just thinking like that. And so on the one hand, it did motivate a lot of strong effort and dedication to the practice. But there was also a kind of edge there. 
that if things didn't go quite as I wanted them to, also led to a lot of discouragement. But over these years, and just with this greater appreciation, this is a vast journey. You know, when we, when we really consider the nature of the mind, the nature of consciousness, of awareness, and all of the powerful conditioning forces in the mind, both for good and for harm, you know, we all have the mix. It's not a question it's not a question of one retreat. It's not a question of a couple of years of practice. This is a lifetime and maybe many lifetimes. And when I got that, when I really settled into that larger sense of the journey, and I found it tremendously inspiring. I mean, some people hear that and, you know, they may think, I don't know, they might get discouraged by, by how big it all is. But for me, it just... I don't know, it just really inspired me that what we're doing, it's not, it's not something trivial. We're really going to the depths of understanding our minds and all the forces that condition it and working in a gradual step-by-step way of both weakening and uprooting the defilements. And what do the defilements mean? It means simply those forces in the mind that cause suffering cause suffering to ourselves, cause suffering to others. And so we're both weakening and finally at some points uprooting these qualities. We're also seeing into the empty nature of it all. So this is big. And as I came to appreciate that, it's like there was a, there was a part of me that just relaxed back into the journey. You know, so there's still the same level of commitment and energy, but without that edge of expectation. And so everything just gets a lot lighter. You know, we, we can hold our difficulties in a lighter way. So I think that, that, that's the biggest change. Sometimes I think that the word enlightenment is really a very good description of this practice. And that translated a little bit into the jargon, we could say it really means lighten up. Just can we lighten up about everything? You know, and I've just seen that both in myself and in many thousands of yogis, that that's exactly what happens. The mind lightens up, is more easeful about things. A phrase that Munindraji, my first teacher, used countless times. He would just say over and over again, be simple and easy about things. Just be simple and easy about things. Be with what's arising, be mindful. You know, don't hold on, but take things simply and easily. And as we can let go of our fascination with our own particular neurotic stories, which we all have, you know, in one way or another, 
if we can let go of holding on to that story so tightly and be simple and easy about things, what happens? Our life becomes simple and easy. Uh, so I recommend it. Well, I, I talked about this a little bit. Uh, can you please talk about stream entry a bit? Stream stream enters abandon identity view doubt grasping at rituals. Does this happen all at once, or does it does one have moments where one dips their toe in the stream? How possible is stream entry for lay followers? Another question. The Vasudhimaga talks about the threefold trap door that people fall through when they get enlightened. Can you explain? <laughs> I never quite heard it described as the trap door. <laughs> so just a little bit about stream entry. Just a couple of things as a way of holding the understanding. The experience of that can vary quite a bit for different people. And it's said that there are three different levels or three different, you could say, levels or depths of stream entry, depending on the relative maturity of the five spiritual faculties. So for stream entry, which is the first experience of Nibbana, right? it's just opening to that unconditioned, the unborn, the unformed, where the mind opens to that. So there is some level at which all of those five spiritual faculties, right, of faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom, there has to be some basic level of maturity of those five factors for this to happen. But they can be at relative strengths. So for some people, you might say they're just enough. And for other people, those faculties might be quite strong. And for other people, those faculties will be very strong. So the experience of stream entry will feel differently depending on the strength of those factors. And so that's why people might report these experiences quite differently. It also depends on which of those five factors is predominant. So for some people, the wisdom factor is predominant. And so for them, the understanding that comes out of stream entry, the understanding that's highlighted is anatta, is selflessness. So that's how they would be reporting the experience. For somebody strong in faith, if that were the predominant factor, then the Four Noble Truths would, would stand out. Now in all cases, everybody has some understanding of, of both. It's, it's not that the understanding of anatta is limited to those strong in wisdom. But one or another aspects of the teachings becomes predominant depending on the strength of the particular spiritual faculties. 
it's possible for some people to have that experience and really not even know it happened. And for other people, it's like a lightning bolt. You know, it's unmistakable. There are many subtle experiences of mind. And it's very hard to tell, often. You know, when people come in and report an experience, it's not that it's always, or even often, easy to say, oh, yeah, that's that. And Saito Upandita would, would often say, only the Buddha mind could say for sure. Because it's easy to misinterpret. And I've, ha- I've had experiences both in my own reflection about my experience and the reflection back from my teachers. I've had the experience both ways both with myself and with my teachers, where experiences were sometimes underestimated and sometimes overestimated. And so this, this happens with experienced practitioners. So all of this is to say that it's not always very easy to say directly, yes, this is it. But the one reference point that can always be used and is, is really the safest the safest reference point in really understanding one's own practice and the development of the practice. It's not about having this experience or that experience. It's about the uprooting, the weakening and uprooting of the defilements. That's what the practice is about. And so people who get too, it's possible to get too fixated on particular experiences. And as I say, they can often be misinterpreted. And sometimes not. Sometimes, sometimes the interpretation is correct. But the really important thing is to see, is there less greed? Is there less hatred? Is there less delusion? That's the measure of the practice. Or in the context of the stages of enlightenment, you could say, are those first three fetters, have they been uprooted? You know, attachment to rites and rituals, doubt, and this self-belief in self. So I think it's just helpful to, to have a very both realistic and pragmatic understanding of relating to this model of the the stages of awakening. Because I've seen a lot of people get very unsimple and uneasy about this. Uh, And there's no need, because again, it's not It's not about you know, having a particular experience. It's about the effect. It's about the understanding that we're developing in our practice. Uh, and so that's what we want to look to. And that's what we want to refer back to.
Okay, having said that, there's another really useful uh, template. Um, You know, it's so amazing with these guys. It's like every question just is a doorway to the whole Dharma. (laughs) You know, it's uh, the beauty of the teaching is it's so comprehensive. Where the Buddha talked about three kinds of hallucinations or you could say three kinds of distortions. There's distortion of perception, there's distortion of mind or of thought, and there's distortion of view. And it's helpful to understand the difference between them because it also relates to the question of stream entry and awakening. So distortion of perception is when we're perceiving something incorrectly. You know, you're walking, you're walking you know, through the woods at night and you see something that looks like a snake, but it turns out to be a stick. So there was a hallucination of perception there. You know, we were perceiving it inaccurately. But it doesn't take, it doesn't take that much to correct that that hallucination. We just have to look a little more carefully say, oh yeah, that's, that's a stick. So that's the lightest of the distortions. The hallucination of mind has to do with all the thoughts and feelings that arise based on the hallucination of perception. So you're walking through the woods and it looks like a snake and you get afraid and then the mind starts a lot of papancha about snakes in the woods and you know, creates a whole story. So that's distortion of mind. But that also is somewhat easily remedied. Again, through just a more careful looking, we realize, no, it's just a stick, so the mind calms down. It's distortion of view, hallucination of view, which is the most deeply rooted of these distortions and the hardest to uproot. And the distortion of view happens when we are so convinced of something that even to all the evidence to the contrary, we don't believe it. So just a few a few contemporary examples of this. And we see it a lot in people who just are in complete denial of climate change. In the light of, I mean, huge array of scientific evidence. And it's not to say that one shouldn't question the evidence. So it's not, it's not suggesting blind belief just because somebody says something. But when we investigate, and if there is overwhelming evidence for something, or the birth of movement, you know, the people who believe that Obama wasn't born in this country. That, it, that's fine to have that, but then, okay, just check it out. And all the evidence suggests that he was. <laughs> but it's so interesting when we have that distortion of view, the reason it's so difficult is because there's almost nothing that will change our mind. We're just fixated on the view. So the biggest distortion of view that we hold 
is the view of self. That's what runs the world. This is is just a powerful, powerfully held view of who we are. Now, a lot of the practice, in fact, somewhere you could say all of the practice, is investigating. Not just assuming it's true, even though the whole world believes that, but following the Buddha's lead, it's, no, just take a look. What is actually there? Can we find the self? You know, when we look, and so our practice is really, it's an analysis. It's an experiential analysis of our experience. So that we begin to see for ourselves the selfless nature. You know, whether you think in terms of the aggregates or the sense bases or whichever model you're using. Okay, so in stream entry, this distortion of view of self is uprooted. We have seen through into the empty selfless nature of this process. And that's why it's called entering the stream. Even though there's all the other defilements still there, but that root defilement has been cut. But what's interesting about this for me is that the distortion of view may have been uprooted, but there still can be distortions of perception and mind. So even at these first stages of enlightenment, of stream enter, of one's returner, this, the mind still gets caught, you know, in desire and thinking, I want, I need, I must have. It was a great jacket. <laughs> I thought. So the distortion of perception is there. The distortion of mind is, can be there. But they no, longer, they no longer have that much power because there's no longer distortion of view. Is this making sense? It's just a way of kind of understanding how, how our path unfolds. Just in terms of that question of the trap door, it said that as the mind progresses through you know, the different stages of insight and understanding, then the mind will open to the unconditioned either through the door of impermanence, the door of dukkha, or the door of selflessness. So it's one of those three characteristics that becomes the doorway for that, for that complete letting go. So we either let go out of seeing just the rapidity of change, and we don't hold on, or through seeing in a much deeper way the truth of dukkha, and we don't hold on, or we see the selflessness, and we don't hold on. And that just depends on our own particular conditioning. What does it actually mean to tame or train the mind? Can it really be tamed? What is a tamed mind like? Well, uh, we've been talking a lot about this. It's really understanding that our mind has been conditioned by so many different forces in our lives, by 
you know, by parents, by education, by society, and in the Buddhist context, by our past lives. You know. But in any case, whether you believe in past lives or not, it certainly has been conditioned in this life. And so different habit patterns have been formed. And there was another question about the meaning of the word sankara. One of the meanings of sankara are these habitual formations. Sankara has other meanings, but that's one meaning. And we see, we know for ourselves, and this is, this is so much the beauty of a retreat. I mean, here you are, you're spending all day, every day, for a week, for two weeks, for a month, for two months, for longer, just watching your mind. <laughs> I love retreats because one can't help but notice the habit patterns of the mind. You know, when we're here and we're undistracted and we're just observing, we just see. We see what the mind is doing. All the habits of desire, of clinging, of compassion, of kindness, of irritation, of annoyance. So we see all these habit patterns and habits are very strong. If we don't bring mindfulness to them, we spend our whole lives just acting out whatever particular habit patterns have been conditioned. You know, so in a way, without mindfulness, we're just we're kind of like sleepwalking through life. We're just acting out the patterns. But the training or the taming of the mind starts with seeing the habit patterns. And then through mindfulness and through wisdom, we see which ones are skillful, which lead to happiness, to peace, which are unskillful, which lead to suffering. And so it just becomes very obvious which patterns should be cultivated, which patterns should be abandoned. And that is the taming or the training of the mind. At a certain point, and this is... This is the enlightenment phrase of the Arhans, which I love it. And somebody actually made me a little desk plaque with this little phrase, which is really particularly appropriate for a messy desk. It says, done is what had to be done. <laughs> because often in the text, that's how, that's how Arhans would announce their realization done is what had to be done. So from that point, there's no training necessary, right? because the mind has been purified of the unskillful patterns. Um, I guess I'll, I'll just close with this. Uh, it is possible to get a taste of that way before we become arhans, you know, and our mind, or the unskillful patterns of mind have been completely uprooted. Because in the stage of equanimity, which is, that's before stream entry, right? but just in the course of a pasana practice, we go through all the, the different stages of seeing impermanence and seeing the dissolution and seeing all the different aspects of the practice, but sort of the, the, 
culmination of the path, or the penultimate culmination, is when the mind just comes to a place of equanimity, where things get very easeful and the mind is just not reactive to what's arising, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. The mind is in this place of tremendous stability, openness, ease. And it's said that that stage of equanimity, it's likened to the mind of an arhant. So we can get a taste of what it's like to have that kind of freedom of mind, even before we we reach the final goal. So we could might say, almost done is what had to be done. (laughs) (laughs) So there there are a lot more questions, but I think... uh, I guess I just want to say, and uh, I know you know all this because it's why you're here, but just to reinforce it, um, it's just such a rare and amazing thing. You know, when I come in in the morning for the morning sit, and sometimes open my eyes before the end and look around, (laughs) it's so incredibly inspiring. You know, it's just to think in this crazy world where the defilements of mind are running rampant and causing so much suffering and in untold ways. It's like the sangha of people who are interested in understanding their minds and looking at their minds and purifying and taming the mind. It, it's just this incredibly rare and precious uh, thing that we're all doing. And so even as you go through all the ups and downs of practice, and I know there are times of tremendous difficulty and frustration, all of that, that's, that's just part of it. And that's insignificant in the context of what's really being accomplished. You know? And so I think you can really take inspiration from that. Now and reflect on that. Let's just sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.